Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Carols for the King. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. With that, I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and pull out the sermon notes that you have in your worship folder. And if you uh, forgot your Bible, just raise your hand, and uh, one of our ushers will bring one to you. We've got plenty of Bibles we can loan you so that you can have a copy in front of you. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and as you're turning there, uh, let me just uh, give you the backstory on this carol, uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And then uh, I want to show you our memory verse for this series, our theme verse. Uh, if it seems like there are too many Christmas carols today, that hasn't always been the case. Uh, in 1627, the English Puritan Parliament abolished the singing of Christmas carols because they were considered pagan songs from a worldly festival. As a result, there were very few Christmas carols in the 17th and 18th centuries. Minister Charles Wesley wanted to change this, though. Uh, Wesley and his brother John are, are best known as pioneers of the Methodist movement and played a, a significant role in one of the great awakenings that took place in our country. Well, shortly after Wesley came to know Christ as his Savior, around 1737, uh, Charles wrote down the following line during his daily devotional time. Quote, hark how the welkin rings glory to the king of kings. And then shortly after that, he finished writing out a poem that became the lyrics for this song. Welkin is an old English word that means vault of heaven makes a long noise. Now, it basically, it's referring to the loud announcement that uh, the angelic chorus made in Luke chapter 2 at Jesus' birth. The tune gained uh, modest regional popularity, I guess I would say, when it was published in a book called The Hymns and Sacred Poems in 1739, so just about two years after he wrote it. Well, fellow evangelist and friend George uh, Whitfield thought the word welkin was too difficult for congregations to understand. And so uh, he changed that word to herald. So it became hark the herald, angels sing. Whitfield uh, took the carol to another level of popularity and got the song published. And then what happened was it, it gained another level of popularity. And then about 100 years later, in fact, it's uh, in 1857, a fan of the world-renowned composer Felix Mendelssohn took the lyrics from Wesley and married them to a cantata that Felix Mendelssohn had written. And the rest is history. And so, um, after this marriage of melody and, and message was put together, it was printed in a Methodist hymnal in 1857 and Hark the Herald Angels Sing became one of the most recognized carols in the world over the next 10 years. 
Wesley went on to write, and here's an interesting tidbit about him. <laughs> some websites and books that I have say over 6,000, and then some say over 7,000, and then I found another site that says over 8,000 hymns. I think he was doing good at 6,000, but <laughs> he's considered one of the most prolific hymn writers of all time and one of the best. Uh, many put him up there with Isaac Watts as one of the best hymn writers of all times. Wesley, along with Watts and others, believed that hymns could be used as a great teaching tool for theology. And so, uh, interestingly too, one of the distinctives of Hark the Herald Angels Sing is the fact that it lists at least six of the unique names of Jesus. Uh, we just sung them, uh, King, Everlasting Lord, Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, Son of Righteousness, and Desire of Nations are all names of Jesus mentioned in the scriptures that were put into the song. Now, if the word hark sounds strange, or maybe it doesn't sound strange because you've sung it for your whole life, um, Here's what it means, actually. Uh, it's an old English word that means to listen closely. Hark. Listen closely. So parents, you can go home and you can say that to your kids. Hark! Clean your rooms, right? Um, herald was uh, not only used in old English culture, but also in the New Testament to refer to a royal messenger or one dispatched from a king. In the New Testament, the Greek word for herald... Uh, Kerygma um, means to preach or refer to preachers. It's so uh, in this carol, it describes the angels that announced Jesus' birth. Thus, it could be translated, uh, Park the Herald, or listen closely, the messenger angels are singing. That'd be another way you could render it. Now, the theme verse for this series that I would like us to learn together is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. I had you turn in your Bible so that if you don't have it underlined, you could mark it up real well. Um, it's one of my favorite all-time verses. And um, I think if I was to die tomorrow and had to pick a Bible verse to go on my tombstone today, uh, this would be the verse that I would pick. It's, it's, it's a verse that comes right at the end of Paul's personal testimony uh, where he's explaining to Timothy how the Lord has chosen him uh, to be an apostle and the great work of grace that God's done in Paul's life. And then Paul kind of concludes or wraps it up by, in verse 15 by saying, um, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Besides the fact that this verse captures the essence of the Christmas story in one succinct sentence, I love the response of humility that's at the end that the verse calls us to, of whom I am the foremost. Now, there are at least five truths that, about the Lord that this carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, puts into the song, or that Wesley puts into the song, uh, so that we won't forget them. The first one is, is this. Uh, I want to encourage you to write it down. Number one on your outline is Jesus' birth makes peace with God possible. Jesus' birth makes peace with God possible. And after you write that down, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
We're going to be hopping around a few different places in the Bible this morning because there are several verses that influenced the, the lyrics that Wesley wrote. And I want to show you in the scriptures where he got these, these ideas from. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the lyric, uh, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, I think comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation, not only how God used the gospel to reconcile sinners to himself, but also how sinners saved by grace that have been born again are called to then share that ministry of reconciliation, to share the gospel. And so if you would look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul writes, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we were once regarded, uh, although we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now Paul uses uh, an old Greek word for reconciled, wherever you see that show up in your Bible. It's a, it's a word that was used in the first century for the exchanging of coins. Now although it was used in the culture to describe the settling of business affairs, uh, when used in this context, it means a lot more than that. Uh, the Greek word for reconciliation used here uh, describes the restoration of a relationship back to its original state of what it should have been or where it's supposed to be. It means to bring together or to restore friendly relations between two parties. Well, what are the two parties? Well, it's, it's us and God. God and sinners, like you and me. The Bible describes unrepentant sinners as enemies of God at odds with him, clashing. So when we are born, according to the scriptures, our inherited sin nature makes us prone to rebel against God, to run into our own thing, and to satisfy our fleshly desires. And so we are at odds. We are under his wrath, according to the scriptures. But... Through Christ, when a believer uh, re repents of, when an unbeliever, excuse me, repents of their sin and places their faith in Jesus Christ, they are no longer at odds with God, but they become reconciled to Him. So the relationship is no longer broken by sin, but restored. Thus, uh, God, in essence, as the victim of our sin, who's been wronged by our sin, chose to take the initiative when He didn't have to to provide a solution to the problem of our broken relationship. 
He chose to provide a path to reconciliation through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. By sending Jesus, the Lord is in essence saying, even though this whole mess that you guys have made isn't my fault, I'm going to come up with a solution that will work for us. Even though I'm not the one that was wrong here, I'm willing to place all your guilt, and mine included, on my innocent son so that I can have a relationship with you forever. That's the gospel in a sentence. And so anyone who repents of their sin and by faith trusts in Christ alone for their salvation can have peace with God, forgiveness, and eternal life, and many more benefits. And so Wesley was praising God for that at Christmas time, and in his devotions, he realized the magnitude of that. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled through Jesus Christ. So here's the second truth that this carol tells us, and that is that Jesus' birth proves God is a promise keeper. Jesus' birth proves that God is a promise keeper. And after you write that down, if you would turn to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Micah is a minor prophet just towards the end of the Old Testament before Habakkuk and Nahum, but after Jonah. Micah 5.2. Another line in this carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is Christ is born in Bethlehem. Now, let me give you a little context about Micah. He's a minor prophet that preached to the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel in the early 700s B.C. Similar to his peers, Micah was given the difficult assignment of pronouncing judgment on God's people because they were rebelling once again against the Lord. And despite their dis disobedience, the Lord promises to make his people a great nation again by sending a Messiah to save them and to lead them. And so if you would look at Micah 5.2, where he says, uh, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. Now, let me give you a little more background and history here. Uh, I found myself, uh, as I was studying this week and preparing this message, asking, I found myself asking the question, why Bethlehem, of all places? Why, why would the Lord want Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why not Jerusalem? Why not somewhere else? And here's three quick reasons that I came up with in my studies. Uh, the first is, is that Bethlehem was significant. Bethlehem was significant. Bethlehem was the hometown of Israel's greatest leader up until this point, King David. And in order for Jesus to be the people's king, he needed to have a royal lineage. The genealogy that's found in Matthew chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was a descendant of David. But the Lord took things a step further by having Jesus not only be born into the same family as David, but also in the same hometown. 
Now, Bethlehem was significant, but on the other hand, it was also insignificant. Just as the Christmas carol says, Oh, little town of Bethlehem, it reminds us that Bethlehem was a village about five miles south of Jerusalem. Very, very small village. Uh, low, very modest population. Uh, modest demographics. And in essence, what, Micah is, what the Lord is saying through Micah here in chapter 5, verse 2, is that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem and it would be as if saying the next Michael Jordan or LeBron James basketball phenom is going to come from Shafter. You're like, Shafter? Do they even have a basketball team? In, in other words, it's like great basketball phenoms don't come from Shafter. You know, they usually come from Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, um, East St. Louis is, my part of the uh, Midwest, that's a, that's a popular basketball hotbed where a lot of Division I players come out of. I mean, so, so in essence, it's, that, that, it can't be, Shafter can't produce a D1 all-time Hall of Fame NBA player. Well, in a similar sense, Bethlehem was seen as too small and too insignificant to produce a great leader. It, it was... It was as, and I think the Lord did this because he was always trying to prevent man from stealing glory. You see, because men are always looking for some way to steal God's glory or logically dismiss his powerful work. The Lord then loves to choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So in other words... Let me boil this down and simplify here so I can be clear. The Lord didn't want anybody saying who was from the town of Bethlehem or some other larger city, yeah, God chose my hometown to have the Messiah born. Yeah, me and him are tight. We're from the same hometown. Because <laughs> he knew man is prone to boast about anything. And so, and so the Lord chose Bethlehem, the least likely place for the next greatest leader to be born. Someone who would save God's people from their sins. Well, Bethlehem was significant and it was also insignificant. It was also symbolic. It was symbolic because the Hebrew word used here for Bethlehem in Micah 5.2 literally means... House of bread. It's symbolic because Jesus would later call himself the bread of life during his earthly ministry as a way to explain his ability to satisfy the deepest needs of our souls. Now, there are over 100 Old Testament prophecies that, about the birth, life, and death of Jesus Christ, and the Lord made sure that every one of them was fulfilled exactly as promised. This means that unlike humans, the Lord has never made a promise he couldn't keep. He's never made a promise that he decided not to keep. 
And he's never made a promise that someone else kept him from keeping. It means that the Lord is never over-promised because he can never under-deliver. So, Jesus' birth proves that God is a promise keeper. And he promised in Micah 5, 2, 700 years before the birth of the Messiah, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Here's a third truth that Charles Wesley tells us about the Lord in his carol, and that is that Jesus' birth reveals God can create something out of nothing. Jesus' birth reveals God can create something out of nothing. And after you write that down, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Wesley writes, offspring of the virgin's womb in his carol. Now in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome, trying to help them understand the connection between Abraham and Christianity. Abraham, you might remember, is the childless 75-year-old senior citizen from Genesis 12, whom God told he was going to build a great nation out of, the nation of Israel. In Genesis 15, Abe asks the Lord, well, how is this possible because uh, Sarah and I are childless and, you know, we don't do certain things anymore now that we're that age. And so uh, the, the Lord replies, well, I'm going to give you a son whom you will call Isaac. Well, the Lord did eventually give Abraham and his wife, Sarah, a son 25 years later when Abraham was 100 years old. And so, if you would, look with me at Romans chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Paul tries to explain to the Roman Christians the significance of this. He says, this is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, uh, here's in essence what Paul was trying to say. He's saying that uh, Abraham received the promise that he would become the father of many nations from a God who, first of all, gives life to the dead that's a reference to the fact that Abraham and Sarah were old enough to be dead. Um, it, 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 their bodies were decaying, and Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90. They're, they were nearly physically dead, and they were well beyond child-rearing years. And so uh, the Lord was able to give them a child anyway. He wasn't limited by them being that old. The second thing, the second characteristic of God that's mentioned in verse 17 is that he's also a God that calls into existence things that do not exist. Literally, the original language in the original Greek text, it reads, he summons the non-existing as existing. And I know if your finite brain like mine is kind of going, what? what? It sounds sort of just like, what? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't. 
He summons the non-existing as existing. It means that the Lord is not confound or he's not confined or bound to natural laws like we are. For example, if you were stranded on a deserted island and you needed to build a shelter in order to protect yourself from the elements, you would have to choose from the materials that already existed on the island. You wouldn't be able to, because you're not God and probably not a mutant that has superpowers, you wouldn't be able to go, snap, I need some two-by-fours, I need some aluminum siding, and let's go with a brick facade as well. You'd have to use what was already there. The Lord, on the other hand, isn't bound by such limitations. He doesn't have to look around and go, man, I wish I had some of this, but there's none here. Instead, as it says in Psalm 33, the Lord just speaks and it comes into existence. Therefore, when the Lord needed to create a savior who would be a substitute for humans on the cross, but not inherit the sin nature that humans have, who had to be royalty, but also a model of humility, and who had to be born at just the right time, at just the right place, God didn't say, how in the world am I going to do that? <laughs> Instead, he put himself in the womb of a virgin and had the largest empire in the world call for a census in order to get that virgin to the exact place at the exact time Jesus needed to be born. So please don't miss the paradoxical truth that Wesley is stating in this verse of the song. Virgins aren't supposed to have offspring. That's the point. And he's amazed at that. And is reminded of that in the Christmas story. And that's why he penned it into the lyrics of this carol. So here's the fourth truth that Hark the Herald Angel Sing tells us. And that is, number four, Jesus' birth allows God to relate to our human condition. It allows God to relate to our human condition. Wesley writes, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. If you would, after you write that down, turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, the apostle writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' birth allows God to relate to our human condition. This is a, the premier verse used by theologians to build the doctrine of the Incarnation. In the original language, it literally reads this, He tabernacled among us. It alludes to the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament when the visible manifestation of God's glory would come down and dwell with his people in the tabernacle and then go back up and come back down. It means that instead of the material, immaterial God coming down to the temple and then going back up to heaven, now, because of the birth of the Messiah, Christ 
could come down and clothe himself with material. An immaterial God putting on material flesh. So he could relate to us more intimately than ever before. Instead of coming down to dwell in the tabernacle like he did in the Old Testament, God decided to dwell among us, as it says in verse 14. Another way to render the original language is to, uh, the, the word tabernacled, it, it also could mean to put up a tent. So it would be as if, say we were all camping out in the mountains, it would be as if Jesus came and just plopped a tent right in the middle of our group and decided to hang with us, to be amongst us, to take part in everything that we take part in. Charles Wesley called this the incarnate deity because theologians call God becoming flesh and dwelling among us the incarnation. The term incarnation comes from the Latin incarne that means to be made flesh. It means that Jesus was both fully man and fully God. It means that he got tired and he slept, just like we do. It means that he got sick and then got healthy, just like we do. It means that he got hungry and ate, got thirsty and drank, got sad, got happy, got sick, healthy, tempted, and overcame temptation, and all the other things that come with the human condition. Jesus experienced all those things. You see, if Jesus wasn't fully human, critics would have said he can't relate to the plight of the human condition. And if he wasn't fully God, critics would have said we can't trust him. And so the Lord took care of both those potential ditches or problems by becoming the incarnate deity. Jesus' birth allows God to relate to the human condition. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Here's the fifth truth about the Lord, the final truth that I'm going to highlight. There's a lot more that I could say about this carol, but uh, here's the fifth truth that I found that I think is worth mentioning, and that is that Jesus' birth makes new life possible for those that follow him. Jesus' birth makes new life possible for those that follow him. Wesley writes, Born that man no more may die. Born to give them second birth. If you would turn with me to John chapter 3, just flip back a couple pages in your Bible, and I'll show you where I think Wesley got his inspiration for this verse. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, John describes the encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus. In verse 1 he writes, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, 
unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, verse 3, I'm going to highlight that, and then verse 7. Unless you are born again. What did Jesus mean by this? Well, in the original language, it means literally born from above. Uh, Jesus is describing a one-time event at a particular point in time that requires a contingency to be met first. In this case, the contingency is Nicodemus repenting of his sin and expressing faith alone in Christ alone for his salvation. Theologians call this being born again regeneration. Regeneration is a work of the Spirit in response to repentance and faith that gives the sinner a new heart so they can know, love, and serve God. The reason we all need a second birth is so that we don't experience the second death. The second death is talked about by John in Revelation 20 and 21. You can jot that down if you want and look it up later. In Revelation 20 and 21, John says those who refuse to follow Jesus Christ, those who reject him, will first die physically, and then they will die spiritually. So they will experience a second death. The second death is when their soul is cast into the lake of fire, according to Revelation 20 and 21. Born that man no more may die, born to give them second birth. Wesley celebrated the doctrine of regeneration in this carol because he understood that God not only diagnosed the problem of our sin in our hearts as fatal, but he also provided a solution. Like a patient suffering from congenital heart failure that needs a physical heart transplant, the disease of sin has ruined our hearts so much that God says we need an operation. Not angioplasty, not a stent, not a bypass, not a valve repair, but we need a heart transplant, a spiritual heart transplant. That's what regeneration is. We need to be born again. And so the Lord is willing to do such an operation on a person that admits to him, I'm a sinner that can't save myself, and I realize, Jesus, you're the only way that I can have salvation. Of course, if you have questions about this, and this is a decision that you've never made, I would love to talk to you more about it at the end of the service. So, Jesus' birth makes new life possible for those that follow him. That's one of the many reasons why it's significant to remember this at Christmas time. Well, here's three applications that come to mind I wanted to leave you with as we bring our time to a close. Uh, these are, this is A, B, and C on the back page of your outline. Uh, what do we do with some of these truths that we've looked at as we've skipped around the scriptures? Well, the first thing that came to mind for me was to thank him for peace. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
it says in the scriptures very clearly that you've been reconciled to him, 2 Corinthians 5, and that you have peace with God. You're no longer under his wrath. And if you don't have peace with God, then there's only one thing preventing that from happening. And that's you. Because the Lord's done everything else necessary. He's done all the work that needs to be done. And he stands and waits for people to humble themselves and come to him. Jesus offers the gift of peace, forgiveness, and eternal life to anyone that is willing to turn from their sin and follow him by faith. So even if this Christmas is not going to be the best Christmas for you, if you're going through a difficult time or you're struggling in your walk with the Lord or you're not feeling saved, you can still thank him for having peace with him. If he's not answering your prayers like you hoped, or you're not going to get the gifts that you wanted to get, or you can't buy the gifts that you wanted to buy, if you know Christ as your Savior, if you've repented in by faith, trusting in, trusted in him alone for salvation, you can thank him for peace with him. Here's a second application, letter B. Uh, wait for him to fulfill his promises. Wait for him to fulfill his promises. We can trust God's word because he always keeps it, and his track record is impeccable, even if it takes longer than you and I would think it should take. You see, Micah chapter 2 reminds us that the Lord's sovereign hand worked over seven centuries through the political and military decisions of kings, the obedience and disobedience of his own people, military conquests and defeat, the rise and fall of empires, the birth and death of ancestors, the marriages, number of children, and gender of children, even unbelievers that didn't believe God existed. God worked through all those things over seven centuries to ensure that the prophesied Savior was born at just the right time, at just the right place, to just the right people in order to fulfill over 100 prophecies. Now, if he can do all that for Jesus and Mary and Joseph, then he can certainly work through seemingly mundane events in your life and mine to accomplish his good for us. The birth of Jesus Christ is, is like a God-sized hole-in-one. It's a 575-yard par 5 with a dogleg right and a green surrounded by a water hazard that he can hit not once, but every time with one stroke. And I would add this application as well, or add this to the application. If you haven't started doing this already, I want to encourage you to learn God's promises in the Scriptures because they will keep your head above water when your heart is sinking. So wait for him to fulfill his promises. The people of Israel and Mary and Joseph and those in the Christmas story, they had not only endured 400 years of silence during the intertestamental period, but then the additional 300 plus more years of prophecies on top of that. But God came through. 
And finally, letter C, application C, believe that he can make something out of nothing. Believe that he can make something out of nothing. We worship a God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. That means he can provide a job when doors keep getting slammed in your face. He can provide a spouse when it seems like all the good ones are taken. He can provide a child when it seems like everybody else is having children and you have infertility. He can provide for a financial need when you can see no money on the horizon. Because he's not confined or bound to what we see or what's available to him. He calls things into existence that do not exist. Well, I want to thank you for being here today. And let's make this not just another Christmas by learning the meaning behind the songs of the season together. I hope that you can join me for the rest of this series as we unpack and unwrap these popular carols. They are rich with meaning and have a deep, significant history. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, there may be some here today that are struggling to believe that you can make something out of nothing. Lord, you are aware of the need and you know where they are and how long they've waited. Would you please provide? Would you provide, as Paul says in his doxology in Ephesians chapter 3, exceedingly and abundantly more than they could ask or imagine? Would you provide in such a way that a God story takes place so that they can say, Man, I never saw that coming. Lord, for those that are waiting for you to fulfill promises, would you give them the grace and the strength to persevere and wait? Your timing is hard for us to understand, and it's especially difficult for us to wait on in a culture that we live in that's so instant and so fast-paced. you help us, Lord, by your grace and by your spirit to be at peace with your timing, to, to be able to say, as David says in Psalm 31, my times are in your hands. Lord, thank you that through the birth of Christ, you are able to relate to everything that we experience here on earth because of our sin nature and because of the fall and the fallout from the fall. You were sinned against. You were betrayed. You experienced all the pain that we would experience and much more. Father, finally, if there is anyone here today that has not experienced new life with Christ or anyone that thinks they have but they haven't, Lord, would you make that abundantly clear by your Spirit? Would you show them, Lord, how far separated they are from you by their sin, but also, Lord, would you show them how near you want them to be with that gentle tug of your Spirit that only you can do? Would you make it possible for them to begin a relationship with you today? 
Finally, Lord, as we continue to study the carols of Christmas, we thank you for Charles Wesley and others like him that were so gifted and so passionate for you. I thank you, Lord, that Wesley believed that worship should be energetic and passionate, not dead and stoic. And I thank you, Lord, that you sovereignly used him to pen these songs, and this one in particular, so we would never forget the significance of Jesus' birth. We pray all this in Christ's powerful name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Carrie Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.